Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. I am your host, Terry Nasherin. On Juneteenth, 2018, American College fellow Jeffrey Robinson stood before a packed house at the historic Town Hall Theater on Broadway in Manhattan to present his closing argument on racism in America. Five years later, this Juneteenth, Jeff joins us to discuss his newest project, a documentary film, Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America. Jeff, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Jeff, you've had a long career as a criminal defense lawyer and then as deputy legal director of the ACLU. Why on earth did you decide at this point in your career to make a movie? It's an interesting, I guess, at least interesting to me and complicated answer. And it really starts back in 2011 when my wife's sister passed away and she was a single parent raising her then 13-year-old son with her mother. And my wife's sister passed away in April, her mother passed away in November, and so our nephew became our son. And he moved from Queens, New York to Seattle, Washington. And since we didn't have kids, this was a huge change for us. And this young black man was now in my home and all the things that I worked on regarding racism in the criminal legal system were now much more than, you know, important things in my life. It was in my home because I had this 13-year-old looking at me asking, what do I do if the police run up on me and how do I act? And so as I was looking for ways really to help me raise a 13-year-old, what I started to find was information about our history, the United States history, that I never had been taught. And I've had one of the best educations in America. I went to Marquette University and Harvard Law School, and yet I was learning stuff in my 50s that I had never been taught. And it made me feel ignorant. It made me feel angry. And I needed someone other than myself to blame. And as I looked for people to blame, I thought I can't blame my teachers because how are they going to teach me something that they didn't know? And getting past that, I became more interested in, I wonder how many other people don't know this history. And I put together a presentation and started going around the country giving it. And after a number of years as a private criminal defense lawyer and then deputy legal director of the ACLU, I happened to give a CLE in Manhattan Federal Court. And one of the lawyers there was named Sarah Kunstler. She is the daughter of William Kunstler, one of the most iconic civil rights lawyers in American history. And she and her sister, Emily, are also filmmakers. And Sarah told me later that she came thinking that she already knew whatever I was going to talk about, and she was going to read her discovery for her new federal case and get the CLE credit. But she ended up having the same reaction I did, which was, this is information we were never taught before. And I met with them on June 20th, 2017. And 364 days later, we were in Town Hall Theater making this film. Because as they said, you can go around the country for all, you know, every weekend that you can, but you'll never reach as many people as a film can reach. And that's how the film got started. And we went from town hall to me giving presentations like I had been doing all over the country. And when we went to places that had stories connecting with our overall story, we were able to have people talk with us and share some very personal things. 
Jeff, one of the powerful devices you use in the film is really to structure the history that you teach us around first-person accounts and stories, some of which we've heard, many of which we've never heard before. How does your training as a trial lawyer connect with that structure that you decided to use in making this film? I think as trial lawyers, there are a couple of things. Number one, when you have a complicated set of facts, put it into a timeline just to see what it looks like. And when I started doing that with this history, you started to see connections that are just undeniable between one event and a next event. As trial lawyers, we all know if you're in front of a judge or a jury, you better have a narrative that makes sense, that is accurate and can be confirmed, and that's going to hold interest. And so just like you would think about how will I structure a direct examination? Where will I use visuals in that direct examination? How am I going to approach this cross-examination? Am I going to have a tone that's really aggressive or am I going to have a tone that's more neutral? Which one is going to help me discredit this witness more? All of those kind of things that we are trained at as trial lawyers went into the way we interacted with people that ended up interviewing with us and then those interviews being part of the film. So my training as a trial lawyer was critical to the way this was put together. You tell a number of wonderful stories, a number of terrible stories in the movie. How did you decide what to include and what got left on the cutting room floor? You know, that is probably the most difficult thing. So let me say this. When it comes to editing the film, there are three people that should get credit. Emily Kunstler, Emily Kunstler, and Emily Kunstler. Because she was the editor and she went into her dark room and would come out with parts of this movie. And I'm still not sure how she did it. But the first time I met them, Emily and Sarah were the best allies that you could ever imagine. They came to me and said, you have complete editorial control. If you say something has to be in the film, it will be in the film. If you say something won't be in the film, it won't be in the film. And, you know, that was, I was impressed by that. And of course, as we worked together and got to know each other, this just became a collaboration between the three of us, Andrea Crabtree, who was now the chief of staff at the Who We Are Project, and several other people where we were all talking about this constant. And the experience that we would have is we'd come out of an interview and everyone would say, my God, that's like the movie's got to start or end with that interview until we did the next interview and the next interview. So just to give you a quick idea of what was quote unquote on the cutting room floor, an interview with the pastor at Mother Emanuel Church where Dylan Roof killed and injured so many people an interview with the woman who was answering the bomb threat at the 16th Street Baptist Church. So she wasn't in the basement changing clothes with her friends, and she survived, and they didn't. Those are the kind of things that we had to make really hard decisions about. And the thing that's important to remember is that we still have all of that footage. And the Who We Are Project has plans for that footage and more as we go forward. So there are many things that didn't make this particular movie, but the Who We Are Project will be using them going forward. Of all the vignettes that you told and the interviews that you did in the movie, is there one that really moved you perhaps more than the others? 
It is really hard because so many of the interviews hit me or touched me in so many different ways. I hadn't seen Opie or Dick Orians in over 30 years. Those are Opie is the kid that I met when I was six years old going into the second grade. I was a black kid. He was a white kid and we became best friends. His older brother, Dick, was our coach starting in like the fourth or fifth grade. And Dick told a story about an incident in a basketball game we went to in Mississippi. I had no idea of the racism that he fought off to allow me to play in a tournament down there. And he told me about it. And it was the first time he had spoken about it in 50 years. He had never said anything to me or my parents. Tell us that story, Jeff. In 1963, my older brother and I integrated a Catholic school in Memphis, Tennessee called St. Louis Catholic School. The pastor, Father Clunan, knew that we lived closer to his school than we did to the all-Black Catholic school, which was down closer to the Mississippi River. And he came to our home and said, I want you to come to my school. And Robert Orians, whose nickname was Opie, because he looked exactly like Ronnie Howard on the Andy of Mayberry show. And I met him. We were both six years old and we became best friends. We went to a basketball tournament in the late 60s. I I can't remember exactly when, but when we got down there, I was the only black kid on our team. And as we walked into the gym, one of the other coaches came to Dick, who was our coach, and said, we don't allow blacks in the gym. And I promise you, he did not use the term blacks. And Dick had to make a decision. Dick was 21 years old. And he decided, I'm not going to tell Jeffrey he can't play because he's part of our team. I'm not going to tell the team that we can't play because of Jeffrey. I'm not going to put this on the shoulders of 11 and 12-year-olds. And he didn't even tell my father. But what he did, who was down there with us, what he did was to turn to us and say, hey, the clock is broken and the referee isn't here, so we're not going to play. We're going to leave. And as we were walking out of the gym, the pastor of the Mississippi school where we were playing this tournament came up to him and said, what's going on? And he told him what happened. And Dick and the pastor went back in the gym and confronted the parents from the other teams. And they decided, "Okay, they're going to let him play. So he came back out and said, hey, the clock's fixed and the referee just got here. So we're going to play. I never knew anything about that for 50 years until he told us that while we were interviewing him for this film. And so, you know, there are things that were incredibly personal that touched me. I think the thing that got to me the most was Senator Hank Saunders on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and As we were talking to him, and this part is actually in the film, he was talking about all the things that were fought for during the civil rights movement and how we're fighting for the exact same things more than half a century later. And he said, white supremacy is very deep in American culture. And I didn't quite understand that. And when he said those last words, and I didn't understand that, his voice was quivering. And we had the experience as we were filming that segment of thinking we were going to lose the entire segment because it was clear something was happening. There were black people and there were cameras at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And at every stoplight, every time the light at the bottom of the bridge turned red, the cars that were there would start blaring their horns. 
trying to drown out whatever we were doing. They weren't doing it to say hello. They were doing it to try and interfere with what we were doing. And this was in 2018 or 19, maybe. And so I think that probably impacted me as much as anything. That's remarkable. Another moment in the film that really struck me involves a brilliant cross-examination that you did of a gentleman in Charleston, South Carolina. How did that happen? Well, we landed in Charleston on a Thursday night, and I gave this presentation that I had been going around the country giving, which is a three-hour-plus presentation. I gave it Thursday night. On Friday, we went to a plantation. We went to the Slave Mart Museum, which is part of the film. We just had, we went to just places where we had incredible incredibly emotional experiences. My chief of staff, Andrea Crabtree, and I sat in the basement of Mother Emanuel Church in the room where Dylan Ruth killed those people and injured others. That was a very impactful trip. So by Sunday, when we were all going to fly back home, I felt like I was sick and I was in the B&B where I was staying and everybody else was out just filming shots and I was going to just meet him at the airport. And either Sarah or Emily called me and said, hey, you've got to get down here to the waterfront. There's this guy who is down here every weekend and he and his group have huge Confederate flags and they, you know, uphold the Confederacy. And he signed a release and he said he'll talk to us. So I got dressed and went down there. And as I was talking with this gentleman, it was clear that he was trying to goad me a little bit by some of the things that he was saying. And I think what he wanted was, you know, a guy with a Confederate flag and a black guy yelling at him. And that's a spectacle that everybody can talk about, but, you know, it really doesn't get anybody anywhere. And I just don't think he realized that, you know, he was dealing with a lawyer that has been trained to cross-examine witnesses. And I can remember in a bank robbery case, I cross-examined a white supremacist for 45 minutes. And this man had a huge swastika tattoo on his leg. And since we all know there's a federal rule of evidence that says you can't drop trousers in federal court, we had to have a picture taken of it. But this picture is behind him. And I cross-examined him for 45 minutes in the tone of voice I'm speaking to you in right now. And I called him either Sir or Mr. You know, blank, his name. Because it wasn't about me yelling at him. And this is, again, what every trial lawyer knows. It's not about showing how disgusted you are with a witness. It's letting the judge and or the jury conclude that the witness is disgusting all on their own. So instead of yelling at him, I listened to what he said and then tried to feed it back to him to make him realize how stupid it sounded. One of the things he said to you, as I recall, was the Civil War wasn't fought about slavery. He said the Civil War wasn't fought about slavery. And if you see the film, you will see that one of the things I do is just to read portions of secession statements. And the secession statements make it absolutely clear exactly what the Civil War was fought over. And it was slavery. There's no question about it. The other thing that he said is, Enslaved people stayed enslaved because they were treated like family. And when he said that, I was enormously offended. I was definitely angry, but I wanted to make him eat those words. And 
I simply asked him, then would it be okay if I owned you as long as I treated you as family? And he wasn't willing to go there, obviously. And the last thing I'll say about him is that we have heard from him since the film was released. And he was very upset because he felt that he was being portrayed as a racist. And he said, if I saw a KKK person carrying a Confederate flag, I would want to beat them up. And I'm not saying we've changed him in any way, because we haven't. He's still down there on the waterfront every weekend with his friends and his flags. But he had a moment of cognitive dissonance where he did not like the way that he looked. And I don't know that he had ever had one of those moments, or at least not in a long time. And there were people standing there on the waterfront watching us. And what I kept reminding myself is, I'm not just talking to him. I'm talking to the people who are listening here, and then people who may see this on film. And I don't want them to see me screaming at this guy. I want them to see what this guy is saying makes no sense. Jeff, I... I think one of the most powerful stories that you tell in the film is a story that really didn't come, I think, to general public consciousness until relatively recently, and that's the story of the Tulsa massacre. And you interview a survivor of the massacre. What was it like being in Tulsa and talking to this wonderful woman who was just a child at the time that those events occurred in Tulsa? Yes, her name is Lessie Benningfield. Randall. And as she said in the film, she is a hundred and something years old. And we went to Tulsa first in December. And I'm not going to tell you the year because I'll get it wrong. And we went to Tulsa and stayed for maybe a week. We did not meet Mother Randall then, but we met Reverend Turner, who was the pastor at the historic church in Tulsa. We met Chief Amusan who is one of the activists in Tulsa and was interviewed in the film. Same with Christy Williams. We met people, Dr. Tiffany Crutcher, who was also interviewed in the film. We met these folks and let them see the work that we were doing and the thing we were trying to do. We then left and we came back again in January and we spent another week. We never got close to Motoran. And it was good that we didn't because the activists there are very protective and we weren't just going to stroll into Tulsa and say, hey, we'd like to interview Mother Randall. Will you set that up for us? We had to show them that what we were doing was consistent with what they were trying to accomplish in Tulsa. And we had to show them that we were willing to be long-term partners. And we are still intensely engaged with the folks that we met in Tulsa. They are doing fantastic work. And we are still supporting them and collaborating. So when we finally were introduced to Mother Randall, unfortunately, it was in the middle of the pandemic and nobody was going anywhere. But we got calls from our friends in Tulsa saying she's feeling pretty good. And, you know, if you can figure this out, let's get an interview done. And we literally, I think we visqueened off an entire room in her house and had a camera sticking through it. This is the only interview that we did via Zoom because of the pandemic. It was an honor to speak to this woman. She is sharp and funny and engaged. And her telling her story, it was a privilege. And, you know, I will comment that you're right. Many Americans never heard of the Tulsa Massacre until an HBO series, like a, a Marvel Universe series. But people saw in the first episode of that series, oh my God, what is this that they're saying happened in Tulsa with airplanes and all of this horrible violence? 
And for many people, that was the first time that they heard of the Tulsa Massacre. And that tells you how deeply buried this story has been. And you know that has to be intentional. There's no way that an incident like this would not be recorded and reported in history books around the country unless there were conscious efforts to suppress this. And if you have any question about that, all you got to do is look at what's happening right now, because there are conscious efforts to suppress this and other stories that are happening right now. Our movie could not be shown in a high school in probably more than 25 states. The first person account that you heard when you went to Tulsa was chilling. Tell us what this marvelous survivor told you about what she remembers. Well, I think the thing that impacted me most was hearing her describe through the eyes of a four or five-year-old what it looked like. And she described saying, you know, I saw several people that were shot down while we, meaning she and her family, were escaping. And then she described a moment that really brought the hair on the back of my neck up. She said that they got to a place and there were just bodies that were piled up in the street. And she was thinking or saying, why are they all laying down in the street? And then one of the adults said, they're dead, they've been killed. And that was a moment that was chilling because thank God we and other people have interviewed and talked to Mother Randall and the other survivors so that these stories don't die with them. Because every single person who is a lawyer listening to this podcast knows when you have a first person eyewitness account of an incident and have that person tell it in an honest and direct way, the impact on the judge and jury is incredible. And basically, you know, we got judges and jurors all over the country that we're trying to reach. Jeff, one of the topics that you tackle in the film is redlining, which, as we know, still has incredible impacts on several metropolitan areas, even to this day. I live in Chicago, and Chicago, thanks to redlining a long time ago, is still one of the most racially segregated cities in the United States. But you tell an incredible story about your parents, who you describe as unicorns in the film, and how it was that they were able to navigate around redlining. Would you tell us that story? My parents were converted Catholics, and they definitely wanted their kids in Catholic school, and that's why we ended up at St. Louis in 1963. And in 1969, after Dr. King was killed in 68, there was a real estate developer that was buying all the houses in our neighborhood because they were going to build a shopping center. And if you go to 5038 William Arnold Road in Memphis, Tennessee, you'll be in the middle of the shopping center, but there used to be a community. And my dad wouldn't sell our house. He was holding out and trying to get everybody on the street to hold out so that we could like make a deal to sell together. But that didn't work. And so our house was literally, at least in my memory, the last house on the block. And my dad made a deal with the real estate developer that I'm going to go find a house and the price for you have to pay me for my house is the price of the house I find. And the developer said, fine. So my dad was trying to stay in neighborhoods around St. Louis School and a particular Catholic high school that I ended up going to. And that meant being in a white neighborhood. 
and we would go and look at houses and contracts would get lost. Someone else, would they'd call and say, oh, another agent sold the house and I didn't know about it. And we even had someone say that they had our contract in their boat while they were fishing and it fell out. And before they could reprint it and get it done again, someone else bought the house. So we went and made an offer on the house we ultimately ended up moving into. And a very short time later, some white friends of ours went and offered less. And they sold it to our white friends who were buying it for us. So my dad got the asking price from the developer and paid for the house. And we moved in. And that was what it took to get a house in a neighborhood that had great schools a house that had room for my four brothers and sisters and I to have quiet places to study. And so my parents were unicorns. But I think that the reason that the story resonates is that there were unicorn Black parents all over America doing exactly the same thing. And I have had more people that I've met across the country who have seen the film, Black folks who are telling me, let me tell you the story of my parents and what they did. And these stories are so similar. And it's one of the things that Sarah Kunstler said, uh, because I was reluctant to have personal stories in this film. And there's a lot about my personal story in this film. And Sarah and Emily convinced me that uh, some of the things that happened in my life had connections to the civil rights movement, to things we were talking about. So we should include those. Jeff, when you made the presentation at uh, Town Hall Theater in New York, it was Juneteenth of 2018. We're now five years beyond that night. Uh, and when I think of some of the events that have occurred even since you started the making of the film, things, things like Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and the real coming of age, if you will, of the Black Lives Matter movement, and now some of the things that are taking place in various states throughout the country, attempting, as you alluded to earlier, to banning discussion of of racism in schools, rewriting curricula, refusing to teach African-American history, and on and on. You know, one might say, well, are we moving backwards? What's your take having studied the 200 plus years of American history. Where are we headed? That is such a great question. And I think the most honest answer that I can give you is we're still wavering at a tipping point. So it's unclear where we're headed. I have both hope and faith and optimism. And it's not, you know, kind of Pollyannish optimism. So let me say a couple of things. When we filmed in 2018, I said there's a Texas legislature movement where they're trying to say teachers will have to teach that slavery was a secondary issue to the Civil War. At that time, no one had even heard the initial CRT or had any idea about it. But even, even then, there was this movement to suppress the truth about our history, a movement that has gone on since before our lifetime and our parents' lifetime. And that's why I didn't know most of the stuff that was in this film until I went out and did research. That's why most people never heard of the Tulsa Massacre. And so I think it's important to think about 2018 to 2023. That's a five-year period. 
And in the history of a country that's 400 years old, that's like a minute. And so tipping points don't last for like a moment. George Floyd's murder wasn't a tipping point. It was an incredibly important event, but it wasn't a tipping point. We are at the same tipping point that I described in 2018. We're at the exact same tipping point now because tipping points, especially in the history of the United States, can last 10, sometimes even 20 years. So we are at a critical moment, but this moment has to be viewed over the long term. And the other thing I would say is looking at folks who are pushing back against telling the truth about our history. These are folks, and I would say, look at what happened on January 6th in our capital. That was an act of desperation, not an act of intellect. I'm not saying there wasn't planning, but that was an act of desperation. When you have parents of fourth graders going to school board meetings and screaming, don't teach my child CRT, when CRT is a law school course, that's desperation. I think everybody who is interested knows that there's a guy named Christopher Rufo who came up with this theory Let's take critical race theory and call anything that relates to black history critical race theory. And let's have a campaign about it. And you can go and just, you know, Google Christopher Rufo, R-U-F-O, and you'll see where this whole CRT thing came from. And I see these things as acts of desperation because people who are trying to suppress this information know what will happen if this information becomes endemic. And what will happen is that many people in America, especially people 40 years old and younger, are going to say, we can do better. And there are things here that are just wrong that we have to address. They know that's going to happen. And I'm not talking about like a wave of the entire country changing, because in any democracy, in any government, you, you look at major changes in history, and it's a few people who are at the vanguard, who are responsible for getting just a few more people. And that's where big change can happen. So I am actually encouraged because those who are trying to suppress this information are doing it, especially with teenagers and college students, let's say. They're doing it with young people who, if you want to get them to read something, the best way to do it is to say, you can't read it. I don't know if these folks have ever dealt with young people before, but that's what they're dealing with. And there's this thing called the internet, where people can get information no matter what's taught in a classroom. So a classroom is not the only place that people can learn the truth. And their attempts to control what's in the classroom, there's big pushback against it. But what I see is that they are fighting a losing battle because this genie is out of the bottle. You ain't going to be able to put the Tulsa massacre back in the bottle. So you're not going to be able to talk about Tulsa and what has happened in the last hundred years in Tulsa without putting it into the context of the massacre. When you didn't know about it, you could have that conversation because you're ignorant about the history, but you can't put that genie back in the bottle. So that's why I am optimistic about the tipping point that we are at at this point in American history and a tipping point that we're going to be at for some time. And this time, It ain't our great-grandfathers or our ancestors who are going to be responsible for which way it rolls. This time, it's us. Jeff, I mentioned that you 
started the film project with the filming of your presentation on Juneteenth, 2018. Was Juneteenth even a holiday then? No, it wasn't. And it was significant to me and to the Kunstler sisters and other people that we worked with, but it was not a holiday. And there was nothing on the radar to suggest that it was going to be a holiday. Well, May 30th of 2021 through June 1st of 2021, you had people marking the 100th year since the massacre. And virtually all eyes in America were focused on Tulsa during that time. The president was there. All kinds of politicians were there. There were all kinds of events there, all kinds of interviews. And people were getting a firsthand look, some for the first time in their lives, about what actually happened there. And this is my point about folks wanting to suppress history because they know the impact that it can have. On June 1st, 2021, you won't find anywhere that there's legislative history or anything about anybody trying to make Juneteenth a national holiday. So how did Juneteenth become a holiday between June 1st and June 17th? I think that's the day Congress passed it. They passed it in time to make it a holiday that year. Congress was dealing with the fact that the whole country was looking at what happened in the Tulsa massacre and saying, we have to do something. We have to do something. What is it we're going to do? And this is, once again, putting things into a timeline. You see what was happening in Tulsa, and you see that almost less than three weeks later, Juneteenth is a national holiday. And the research I did indicates that it cost $450 million to shut down the federal government for one day. So what Congress did just over the next 10 years is agree to spend $4.5 billion to give us a holiday. I'm not saying Juneteenth shouldn't be a holiday, but I'm saying that When you hear people say things like, well, we just wouldn't have the economic ability to do this, that, or the other, you see something like this and you have to start to ask questions. Jeff, what do you hope to accomplish with the Who We Are project, which is bigger than the film, but includes the film? The Who We Are project is a 501c3 organization, and our focus is education. We are going to be narrowly and intensely focused on educating people about the truth, about our history of reliance on anti-Black racism in America. And let me say very quickly, the name of the film is Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America, not The Chronicle of Racism in America, because I'm telling the story of anti-Black racism in America. I didn't feel I had the agency to tell the story of other kinds of racism in America, but, you know, for another day and other groups and, and things we might collaborate on. We plan on taking up a lot of space. We're going to be very active on social media. We have already released a second mini documentary. It's only seven minutes long, but it's about the 1876 presidential election and the compromise that came after that, that made Rutherford B. Hayes president of the United States. And part of that compromise resulted in essentially the North removing some troops and looking the other way while the South instituted its black codes and Jim Crow laws that led us into the 20th century. And that film is narrated by Tom Hanks. 
and he's collaborating with us on several other projects. So we are going to focus on social media and other kinds of media to make sure that we can reach people. But just talking about that seven-minute documentary, if there's a history class where you're going to talk about the election of 1876, which, by the way, was decided 185 to 184 in the Electoral College, if you're going to talk about that, a seven-minute documentary that has a whole lot of facts and a whole lot of interest is a way to get students engaged. So we want to provide tools for teachers who can use them in states where this kind of an education is fostered. And in the anti-CRT states, we have plans for a series of events that we call Days of Learning. And our first one is going to be in Jacksonville, Florida, before the end of this year. We will, and for reasons which are all too obvious, and we will go with screening our movie on a Friday night, having a talk back after the movie. And on Saturday, we'll be inviting everyone from the community, including students, parents, teachers, groups, activists. We will invite the governor and the Republican legislature, but I don't think they'll come. We will have state, local, and national experts on anti-Black racism engaging in a whole day teaching. We will have breakout groups where different subjects are discussed. Our plan is to provide food from Black-owned restaurants, and we will make clear what the government in the state of Florida is trying to suppress is not only true American history. So I've already told you about our plan to educate people, especially our young people, on how they can do research and original source document research do interviews of people, film the interviews of people, giving them lawyer and actor training and how to talk to audiences. So we have these and other plans that we are currently fundraising for because our project is small. Literally, Andrea Crabtree and I and a couple of part-time people. And yet, with that small number of people, we've made over a 100 presentations around the country since we really opened our doors in April of 2021. And some of those have been at small organizations. One was on the General Assembly floor at the UN. We've spoken to corporations, to all kinds of groups and our goal of getting this information out there. Jeff, if our listeners are interested in getting involved with the Who We Are project, what's the best way for them to do that? Come to our website, www.thewhowearproject.org, and contact us. Because especially, you know, if there are lawyers listening, there are partnerships that we would like to have with law firms where part of our we can get help with part of the research that we'd like to be done. And it's not only how the legal system has used anti-Black racism, because there are examples of that that are both in the film and that we're researching right now. But the kind of original source document research that we're doing is something that could be, you know, we could get plenty of help on from law firms around the country. And if people contact us, we can tell them about our days of learning and our other programs and how we're trying to fund them. And, you know, it may be that law firms want to support that. It may be that they know clients that would want to support us. So get in touch with us and engage so that we can talk about how you could support our work. We would be greatly appreciated.
Jeff, thank you so much for spending time with us today to help us celebrate Juneteenth. I'd like to make sure that our listeners are aware that the movie, Who We Are, A Chronicle of Racism in America, is currently streaming on both Netflix and Amazon Prime. And if you check out the project website, as Jeff said, the whoweareproject.org, there are many other resources about the project that are available on the website, including the ability to license the film if you'd like to have it shown for a group or in your offices, and also the short film that Jeff mentioned. I'd like to thank you all for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast of the American College of Trial Lawyers. The American College is dedicated to making maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every inspiring episode.